Good morning. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. Um, we're in a series on Revelation, and uh, it's been, hold on just one sec. It's been an interesting process because one of the things, if you remember, we talked about was that there's really nothing in Revelation that's new. Okay, in other words, the images that are given to us, the, the symbolism, it's all been seen before. And I talked last time about how if you try to read Revelation separate from the other books of the Bible, if you haven't read the other books of the Bible, when you get to Revelation, it's very hard. It's like reading the last chapter of Moby Dick. You don't understand what the context is. And so Revelation's is actually a fairly easy book to understand if you remember what you've read in the previous 60-something books. So we're going to dive into Revelation here, and, and I'm going to show you today that um, often the symbols that we use to represent ourselves are not the symbols that God uses. We're going to learn that today. Revelation 1-7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. Now remember, John is on the island. He was in the spirit. He's praying, and he begins to hear and get vision from God. John is telling us, now here's, here it is. We read that, and we go, well, of course. But John is saying the promise is real. Remember, he's in the first century. Jesus is 40, maybe 50 years uh, resurrected. He promised to come back. He hasn't come back yet. They're all dying, and John says, look, He's returning. He's going to come on the clouds just like he said. He's reminding them of this. And this book is going to tell us, reveal to us, show us more about what that's going to look like and how it's going to happen. Everyone, the apostles, the early believers, expect Christ to show up at any second. That's what fueled their passion for holy living and evangelism. He could come back any minute. i got to tell you about him. They expected his return at any moment. They lived as if it was imminent. We live as if it's optional. They thought he would be back in their lifetime. Clearly, we see Paul and Peter. They both were surprised to get to the end of their lives in about A.D. 68, and Christ hasn't returned yet. So what does it mean when it says he'll return soon? See, with the Lord, Peter says the day is like a thousand years. The return is near. It's imminent. The word we talked about last time, it means it's going to happen quickly, not immediately. When it happens, it'll be like that. It's approaching. We long for the rapture. We talked about that for three weeks. We look at the different feasts, the, his second coming, his return to earth, to the Mount of Olives to lead a battle of Armageddon to finally set right the world. Everyone will see him, particularly the Jewish people, it says. Those who have pierced. Now remember, we've talked about how Revelation is really the story of God reaching back to the Jewish people again and saying that there's a group of you that need to follow me. Some have rejected, but I, but I need to bring the remnant home. Um, by that time, the, the, the Jews had, had will return to Jesus and trust him as their Messiah. They'll see his pierced hands and feet. They will wail because they'll realize the truth of what happened on the cross. 
Zechariah 12.10, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And they'll weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. John now, looking in Revelation, is telling us, yes, that's going to happen. All the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. It won't be just the Jewish people who mourn, but it'll be many people around the world who have rejected him, and they will realize in that moment that they missed it. All the tribes of the earth, they'll all look at his scars and say, we, we did that to him. And worse, after doing that to him, we denied that he paid the price for us. Revelation 1.8, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Quote from Jesus, who is, he was in the past, he'll be in the future, he's the beginning, he's the end, he has authority over everything. Remember at the end of the Gospels, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He has plans for history. He directs the path of human events towards his desired fulfillment. Our lives are given over to him to trust, to allow him to carry out his mission. The word almighty here comes from a Greek word, which literally means the one who has his hand on everything. It speaks of the sovereign control of Jesus over the events of our lives, over the events of the world, past, present, and future. Revelation 1.9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation. Notice that. I'm, I'm a partner. I'm sharing the tribulation with you. I'm no different than you are. We're all in this together. We're also all in the kingdom, and we've all had patient endurance. That in Jesus, I was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. After Jesus' crucifixion and death and resurrection, John became the leader of the church at Ephesus. John will become the last living apostle. All the other apostles, we are told, have been martyred. Jesus spoke when Peter said what would happen to John. John 21, 21. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? See, Jesus had just told John, how, just told Peter how he died, and he says, well, what about him? That's Peter, I love him. Wait a minute, I'm going to die, I'm dying on it. What, what about him? And Jesus says, it is my will that he remain until I come. What is that to you? You follow me. So that spread among the brothers that this disciple will not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain, what is that to you? See, the early church thought John was invincible. They thought he would live until Jesus came back. As long as John was here, Jesus isn't back yet, but we're going to see him any minute because John's looking pretty old. It's not what happened. You get a clear sense in the Gospels that John was the youngest, clearly the youngest disciple of the group, and many believe that when he was following Jesus, he was a child, probably 12 to 14. Matthew seems a bit older. Other ones, he's a tax collector, he's established, probably about the same age as Jesus. Yet yeah, you get the impression that James and John were younger. Maybe in their early teens. John is the youngest because we know where he sat at the Passover Seder, and we've talked about that before. 
But at one point, remember, these two sent their mother to go ask Jesus who was going to be the greatest. Men don't do that. Kids do that. Moms who want their kids to excel in baseball do that sort of thing. Their interaction is different with Jesus. Jesus is clearly more of an older brother, more of a mentor, whereas with the other disciples, he's more of a colleague. But now John's old, and they're all gone. This book was likely written in A.D. 95 or so. John's pushing 80s, upper 80s, which is very old at that time. He's the last living apostle. He's the pastor at the church of Ephesus. There were two major persecutions in his life, Nero in 64 to 68 A.D. when Rome burned, and the next one is under Domitian in 95 A.D. We believe that because of the word of God, John was on the island of Patmos because for some reason Domitian, rather than killing him and executing him, decided to exile him. We don't know that for sure. What we do know is what he told us, which is I'm on this island because of the message of Jesus. Could be on a missionary trip. We don't know. It's presumed that he was under some form of isolation. Now, this is a very real place. You can visit it today. That's what I love about the Bible is that all these places are very real. John was on the island of Patmos. It's off the coast of Asia Minor in the Aegean Sea. It's like an Alcatraz island. The Romans used that island to exile people they didn't want to deal with. Patmos is a rocky, desolate island, 10 miles long, 6 miles wide. John says he was at Patmos because of his faith. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So he said, look, on Sunday I was praying. I was deeply communicating with God in the Spirit, and while I was praying, I heard behind me a loud voice. It sounded like a trumpet. It was loud. It startled me. I was afraid to turn around. The voice said, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. To Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now notice at this point, John is too scared to turn around. Okay, he's standing, he hears a voice behind him. A loud voice like a trumpet. It says, you write this stuff down. You do this stuff. He's too scared to turn around. Why those particular churches? Why those seven? Well, notice that the first one is Ephesus. That is John's church. He's been there for years. Paul founded it, but John is now their leader, and he's been exiled to Patmos. Ephesus is a major port city. It has hubs that go out, major roads that go out to get products throughout the empire. Each of these seven churches are on one of the spokes going out of Ephesus. So if you look on a map and you see Ephesus, you'll see that major trade routes went through each of these towns. They are literally churches who were operating at that time. Likely they were church plants from Ephesus, and it's likely John himself planted them. He visited and preached at each of them. He knew these churches. We're, that's going to be important because when we begin to hear what Jesus has to say to the churches, John is very familiar with each church. They're all under his spiritual influence. I guarantee you, if there were churches within 15, 20, 30 miles of John's home church, he was involved. Revelation 1.12. Then I turned to see the voice. Notice, then I turned. 
I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe with a gold sash around his chest. Hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like the flame of a fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. Who could this be? Who is this person that John has seen? Well, remember, no, very few new people show up in Revelation. We've seen this person before. Back in Daniel. Daniel 10, verse 4. On the 24th day of the first month, I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris. He'd been exiled to Babylon. The Tigris River flows through what is today Iraq. Daniel, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning. His eyes were flaming torches. His arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words sounded like the sound of a multitude. You see, Daniel's seeing the same Christ that, that John's seeing in Revelation. This is the exact figure of who is described in Revelation. Two independent accounts of the same person described by Daniel and by John. Who is this person? In Daniel, it's the pre-incarnate Christ. In other words, Christ before he came to earth. And in Revelation, he's the risen, glorified Christ. Now that's important because he's the same before and after. He's the same. He's God. Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. He never changes. Daniel sees him, and thousands of years later, along comes John, and he sees him portrayed into the future. Remember, Jesus says, I'm the one who is and who will be. Eyes like the flame of fire. Fire is associated with judgment in the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit. Jesus' eyes display a fire of searching penetrating judgment. His feet were like fine brass. Since fire is connected with judgment, feet like fine brass as if refined in a furnace. Speaks of someone who's been through the fires of judgment and has come out pure. Jesus has been through the refiner's fire. His feet are bronze because he's been pured. He's been purified. He's pure to begin with. As, as taking on our sins, he's been purified again. Brass is a metal that was associated with judgment and sacrifice. Israel's altar of sacrifice was made of brass. It's called the brazen altar. If you remember when we talked about the temple, the, the altar, the sacrificial altar is made of brass. It was also the strongest known metal at that time in the world. So John sees the risen and glorified Christ. Think about how incredible this is. John is looking into the holiest of holies. He's looking at the original. Do you remember when we did the weeks on the tabernacle and I talked about how the holy of holies, the, the candles, the, the lampstand, the ark, all those things were just shadows of the real thing in heaven. 
The, the dwelling place of God on earth with his people was a replica of the real place in heaven where God lives. Well, now we're seeing the real place. John is literally looking into the Holy of Holies, heaven, the throne, the place of God, and he sees Jesus. John has a glimpse into heaven. Think about that. See, it's easy to read this book and just go, oh, that's interesting. He saw seven lamps. He's looking in heaven. He's walking into the place that for Jewish people only one person once a year could go in. The curtain has been torn. We're allowed to go into his presence, but in our fallen state, we still not, don't deserve to be there. John is seeing Jesus among seven lampstands. We've seen lampstands before. Lampstands is what illuminated the Holy of Holies. You see, there was no light inside the Holy of Holies except for the lampstand. And God was very specific how you make a lampstand. They were designed by God. This isn't some random sort of idea that people, oh, let's put a candle in there so we can see. No, God said, oh, here's what I want you to do. You make a lampstand out of pure gold. It should be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers will be one piece with it. Take a block of gold and you make this. There shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches out of one side, three branches out of the other. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. One, two, three. One, two, three. And the lampstand itself shall be four cups made of almond blossoms, or like almond blossoms. And a calyx of one piece under it, each pair of six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it, the whole of it a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it. Wait a minute. One, two, three. Seven lamps from it, okay. And the lamp shall be set up to give light to the space in front of it, okay. Its tongs and trays will be of pure gold. It will be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown to you on the mountain. God gives detailed instructions of what the golden lampstand is to look like when it's placed in the tabernacle. Why? Because it needs to look like the real one in heaven. It's interesting to note how precise God is about this lampstand. He wanted the lampstand to look a very specific way for a very specific reason. We can be assured there are no wasted words in the Bible. So if God goes to the extent of telling him how to make it, there's a reason for it. The lampstand was to be made of pure gold, hammered out to the perfect accuracy of God's decree. Gold was the most valuable of all metals. Gold is often spoken of in terms of being tested in the fire. God compares the testing of gold with the testing of the church. A single block of gold was hammered into the lampstand. Gold represented purity. 
refined by fire. It represents God's holiness in us. 1 Peter 1.6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. All of us are going to be tested in fire. If we're made of gold, if we're made of God's holiness, God's purity, if we, if we surrendered to Christ, we will get through the fire. Testing, refining, defines the true people of God. Zechariah 13, 8. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third will be left alive. I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them and I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. What he's saying is there's a time of revelation coming, a time of testing. This time is focused on the Jewish people who have rejected me. We're told two-thirds. Now, we don't know if that's of Jewish people or of the world. Two-thirds are going to reject him. But there's going to be a third that when they stand in the fire, they are pure. They are my people, God says, and I'll be their God. The lampstand as a whole is to be fashioned as a tree with a base and a center shaft, representing the trunk with three branches on either side. The top of the shaft and each branch was to be made like an open almond flower, and each flower held an oil lamp. There are several passages in the Bible, remember, nothing's new, that speak of the almond tree. If you remember, God used Aaron's rod as a sign to the Israelites of his priesthood. One time, Aaron's priesthood was being challenged, and God caused Aaron's rod to bud and grow ripe almonds overnight, proving that he was the priest of God, the shadow of things to come pointed to Jesus, our life-ordaining, life-giving high priest forever. Why the almond tree? Well, the almond tree was always the very first tree to bud in the spring. If you wanted to know when spring was coming, you looked to the almond tree. It was always the first to blossom, always the first to bear fruit. As early as February sometimes. If you wanted to see evidence of new life, you looked at the almond tree. While others were dormant, the almond tree was rising to life. Hebrews 7:26. For it is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unsustained, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those of the high priest, to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then those of the people, since he did this once when he offered himself up. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later with the law, appoints a son who's been made perfect forever. Jesus is the high priest. What the Hebrew author is foreshadowing is Jesus as a high priest attending to his church and to the people of his churches. Jesus among the seven lampstands 
represents the complete church. Each lampstand representing a church. The seven, the perfect number of completeness, representing the entire church. Remember that our tabernacle that they took with them and the temple that was on earth was purely an uh, earthly image of the real temple in heaven. Don't miss this. John is seeing the holiest place ever. He's looking into the holiest place of heaven. There are seven golden lampstands, much bigger than this one, I'm sure. They say everything's big in Texas, and it is, but I think in heaven everything's like really big. Seven lampstands, one in the midst tending to the lampstand. Remember that the lampstand was the only light in the darkness of the Holy of Holies. If God's light didn't shine, there was no light. In the tabernacle, it was placed in the first section called the Holy Place. Day and night, 24-7, it is attended to by Aaron and his sons, who are all priests. The lights never went out. The lampstand was to give forth light day and night. The lampstand in the Holy of Holies was the only source of light behind the curtain, the only source of light that pointed directly to Christ. John says Jesus is the true light that gives light to everyone. It's the only way anyone can come to the Father. Jesus called his church the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill could not be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. The light of God does not come from us. Don't miss this. It comes from Christ abiding in us. We don't own it. We don't produce it. We possess it, or better, it possesses us. You see, the lampstand by itself doesn't produce light. We're the lampstand, but we can't make light. Our job is to make the light evident, to lift it up so it shines brighter. See, Jesus didn't say, you're the light. He said, you're the light of the world. He didn't say, you're the light in the Holy of Holies. What he said was, you're the lampstand. Your job is to stand tall and elevate the light so others can see the light. And so the light can go further into the darkness. That's why the seven churches are defined as lampstands and not lamps. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, John said. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. A Christian who is shining with the light of Christ will live a godly life. Peter, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Scripture is overflowing with references that compare and contrast light and darkness, believer, non-believer, right up through the book of Revelation. In temple worship, the object of beauty was symbolic of the light of God, the presence of the Shekinah glory in the Holy of Holies, 
God literally living in his tabernacle with his people. As long as the lamps kept burning, the Jews were aware of God's presence and leadership. You see, they never failed to see. Even when they got up and left, fire by night or fire by day. They followed the fire. They always had the presence of God with them. Priests always tending to the lamps, trimming them when necessary, making sure the oil was there to burn. They could not let the light go out. It's a reminder of God's promises. I will always be with you. Just as that light represents me, it'll never go out. I'll always be with you. Seven branches of the lampstand represent the seven branches of creation and is the number of completeness. The symbolism is apparent in the prophecies of God. Now, you have to understand these three outer candles represent the church, the people. The center one, the one that connects to the root and the tree, is God. Okay, seven, perfect number. 1 Kings one thirty six. Yet to his son I will give one tribe that David my servant shall always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I've chosen to put my name. The menorah in the Old Testament represented the nation of Israel, which was to be a light to all the nations. Led by the Lord's power, he would bring salvation to the world. A point made in Zechariah's vision of the lampstand. Even today, the menorah is an important Jewish emblem appearing on Israel's coat of arms to symbolize their role as being a light to the world. But here's what's interesting. You won't find a six-arm or seven-arm menorah in Jewish homes. If you look at the menorah that's in Jewish homes today, there's nine. Why? Well... Basically, they had to have a light for Hanukkah. So about 50 years before Jesus was here, they decided we're going to make two more arms. One will be a candle to light from, and the other will be the extra Hanukkah light. They said they could not show a seven-light candle menorah because that's only to be in the temple, and the temple's been destroyed. The New Testament sheds light on this symbolism, no pun intended. Jesus says, you're the light of the world, a city hidden on a hill. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. Its light shines on everyone. Since the coming of Christ, the church is now God's menorah to the world. The bringer of the light of Christ into a dark world. Our job is to represent this. The lampstand is a symbol for the way the church is to represent God's presence in the world. Just as the, in the Old Testament, the menorah represented God's presence in Israel, that light that was once available for Israel is now available to the whole world. The literal lampstand in the Old Testament is a symbolic one foreshadowing the one in the new. Today, most Christians identify with the cross as the symbolism of their faith, as their, 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 their representation of the church, they think of the cross. There's nothing wrong with that. But in Revelation, when God wanted to describe the church, he didn't choose a cross. He chose a menorah. 
The lampstands are the seven churches. Each church, a lampstand. Six branches and lamps representing, and the seventh lamp in the middle, complete in Christ. You see, six is the number of man, seven is the number of God. The center light, the light that lights all the others, is Christ. Solomon's temple had ten of these in the holy place. Each lamp burned olive oil and was kept burning throughout the night at all times as a symbol that God was with his chosen people. Extra-biblical sources suggest that in latter times, the middle lamp, which represented God, was kept burning around the clock all the time. So the tabernacle is a temporary representation of the holiest place in heaven. The priests tended to the light daily to make sure it was always burning, always overcoming darkness. The light is Christ shining through us into the darkness of the world. What the temple foreshadowed or copied, John is now seeing the original. Place of God in heaven. John sees Jesus, our high priest, in the holiest places, tending to the light that is the church. Take a moment and try to visualize what John is seeing. I mean, really, we're going to take a moment. I want you to visualize what he's actually seeing. He's looking into the actual holiest of holies, the very throne of heaven. Picture the seven menorahs or lampstands, all well-lit, oil burning brightly, casting light. Picture Jesus. Take a minute to really picture this. Revelation is a visual book. Picture Jesus. You see it? Jesus moving from lamp to lamp, each one representing a church that he loves. To the church at Ephesus, tell him this. To the church at Smyrna, tell him this. You can almost picture him going from lamp to lamp, each one representing a different church, and Jesus himself going, oh, I know this church. Tell him this. Tell him this. The disciple that John... The Jesus loved, John, the, the, the beloved disciple. He, he's reunited with Jesus. He, he's taken to the very place where, and there he is among the lambs. You see it? Telling John what to write to each church. It's incredible, right? Wait a minute, you may have the wrong image. You see, we think of Jesus as a gardener tending to the roses. Do you see him as a gentle priest tending to his lamps? Let me remind you of what John saw. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furious. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. The resurrected, powerful Jesus. His eyes were like a flame of fire. There were seven menorahs, but that light was nothing compared to the light that's coming from Jesus' eyes. 
His voice is like the sound of many waters. When he talks to each church, John is seeing fire in his eyes and his voice roars. That's the image. He's among his church. His church has been persecuted, tortured, beaten, martyred, denied, lied about, and the resurrection Christ is in his throne tending to the church until it's time. That's the image. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I was dead. This isn't just Jesus tending to the lamps. This is Jesus making sure that his lamp goes into every ounce of darkness that has ever existed. Place yourself on your face shaking. Jesus with fire in his eyes. Hear his roaring voice and see the seven lampstands, the seven stars that he tells us later, the angels of the churches. Now you have the image that John wants you to see. Each lamp shining brightly, each fully glorified. The priest tending to the lamps, making sure each church shines brightly, particularly as it gets darker. Jesus will say later that the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The seven churches represented by the lampstands were actually churches that existed. We talked about that. But it also represents the number seven, the entirety of the church. Not only the church that existed then, but all churches for all time, including remnant. Very soon, we're going to see Jesus address each and every church, all seven of them, with specific messages to them. And what we're going to discover is while those messages are to each individual church, all churches were told to read every letter from all the other churches. Why? Because we all have the problems that all the seven churches have. In Jesus' letter to Ephesus, John's church. I mean, imagine this. John, hey, write a letter to Ephesus. Okay, I'm ready. That's my church. How are we doing, God? We're doing good, right? I'm going to write. Yeah, go ahead. Give me a letter. I'll, love to, I'll tell him I saw you. Your church has lost its first love, John. They have to repent. Or I will come to them and remove their lampstand from its place. Wow. This is Ephesus. This is the church that had Paul for 10 years. This is the church that's had John for years. In other words, the church is in danger of losing its opportunity to be the light of Christ in the world. In the vision that John has, Jesus is in the center of the lampstand in the midst of his people. He's always present with his church. Candlestick is not the light, it's the bearer of the light. Jesus is the light of the world. Church's mission is to hold that light up for the world to see. And he tells them, hey, at Ephesus, if they don't get back to their first love, they're not going to lose their salvation, they're going to lose their light. Philippians 2, 15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. To describe what the church and its spiritual significance means would take a thousand books. But God gave just one picture. 
What's the church? How does the church live? How should it look? God says in Revelation, look at the lampstand. Understand the lampstand, you'll understand the church. Golden lampstands are things that the recipients of John's letter would have immediately identified. The sacred furniture of the tabernacle and the temple. The tabernacle had one lampstand, the temple had ten. The perpetual burning light means that there's always a glow coming from within the tent of meeting. In essence, the message was the lights were on and the occupant is home at all times. God is with us. God was the original, I'll leave a light on for you. It's meant to comfort the people and remind them that the God of the universe made his home with them. Also meant to point them to a day in the future when he'd send his son into the world as the light of the world and the one that would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. God dwelt with his people symbolically in the temple, tabernacle, but then he came in the flesh And he dwells with his people today through the abiding power of the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit was poured out on the first disciples at Pentecost, they looked up and saw tongues of fire. Fire is the symbol of the providing, abiding presence of the Spirit of God with his people. The church must be golden. Gold signifies God's essence, God's nature. That means the church must have God's essence as his substance. Lampstand shining with sevenfold intensity. The Trinity is here too. The Spirit shining forth, Christ is the embodiment, and God is the very essence. What's the church? It's to have the composition, constitution of a triune God shining brightly through God's virtues and attributes, through his people. We need message upon message to describe what the church is. But God says, just look at the lampstand. Look at the church. That, you want to know who we are? We're the lampstand. It's not muddy, it's gold. It's not without form, it's shaped with purpose. It's not dark, it's shining. That's the church. The light doesn't come from the lampstand. The light comes from the oil lamps themselves. The stands merely make the light visible. That's why we're such a good image of us. We don't make the light. We don't produce the light. We just display it everywhere we go. We take the light into darkness. A congregation that loses Jesus as their first love will lose the privilege of being a carrier of the eternal fire of the Holy Spirit. They'll go on as a church, but the Spirit won't be there. They may even look good. The Spirit's not there. Jesus promises that his church will never be overcome, but he never promises individual congregations will always be here. When a church stops loving Jesus... When a church harbors sin in its midst, when a church stops teaching the word of God, they lose their love of Jesus and they're in danger of losing their status as a keeper of the flame of God. Church is a lampstand. We have to embrace the breathtaking privilege of being part of God's churches. 
with this background, we can begin to understand the message of Revelation 1. The church is the lampstand because it's the dwelling place of the Spirit of God on earth. Churches are the keepers of the light of God's truth and salvation in a dark, lost world. Jesus is the Lord of the church who walks in the midst of her, tends to her, and the individual congregations are the keepers of the light of God's presence. You, I don't have to tell you this, but our world is not impressed with the church. There are times when we're not impressed with the church. The church can look weak, ineffective, completely without relevance in the world. And yet God says the church is sacred. Golden lampstands carrying the perpetual fire of God's presence and his people around the world. We need to be reminded of that truth. Where do people encounter the presence of God on earth? Where do people find the dwelling of the Holy Spirit in our world? It's in the people of God. But the emphasis here is not on individual Christians spread out in isolation or watching online. The emphasis is on the congregation of God's people coming together and sharing their light with each other. It's when we're together that the world sees our brightest light. It's when we're in unity that the light is unhindered in a dark world. There are several implications of this truth. One is that we need to act like we're the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. We need to come together and say, thank you, God, for bringing all these people together who are lights in my world, too. Congregations need to pursue holiness. We need to make sure that each of us is as holy as we can be so each of our lights shine brightly. We also need to see the value of coming together corporately, being a meeting place of God. We also have to make sure that the church, not just our church, but every church, proclaims the gospel truth and nothing else. And the last thing we should notice is that every, every person who's a believer in Christ should be connected to some congregation where they can share their light with others and with each other. No candle burns on its own very long. Nowhere are we instructed to light only one branch of the menorah. The entire church is to be lit. Every year on Christmas Eve, I get to see the menorah that is remnant. If you haven't been here for a Christmas Eve service, we always close that service by burning candles and singing Silent Night. I have a unique perspective of that moment. I've done it now for 12 or 15, I can't remember how many years. And you just get to see each person with their light. It's beautiful. I have a picture of my desk, on my desk at home where it's my three children holding their candle. And it's the church representing the light, each person adding their light to the darkness and the collective light of the church joined in unison. It's the highlight of my year. I have the best view of what the light of our church looks like. We're about to spend several weeks on the warnings that Jesus gives to the seven churches in the first century and to the church today. I pray that Remnant will always be a place where the light is always on because the truth is not only preached, but practiced. The fire of the Spirit burns in every heart of every person in our church family. 
that each of us pursues holiness so that the light of God put in us is not hindered as we share it with each other and with a dark world. In a moment, we're going to come together and we're going to light candles. And I want to remind you of a couple things. Every time you come into this place, you bring with you the presence of the Spirit of God. There are people who need to be ministered to who walk through these walls, through these doors every day. If they don't see the light in us, they're not going to see it at all. They need us to show them the way home. So I'm going to ask the band to come up. And I want you to realize today that we share the light together or we don't share it at all. Any of us who isolate ourselves will eventually burn out. We need each other. It's part of being a church. It's why God designed it. So it's important that we take this light and we don't take each other's light. We light it from the center one, which represents Christ. And I'm going to ask you to stand up, grab your little candles, and here's what I want you to say when you light the candle, the person next to you. We're the light of the world. We shine together in the darkness. So as you light the candle, the person next to you, tell them, look them in the eyes. We are the light of the world. We do this together or we don't do it at all. <laughs> 